Hi, I'm Steve Englehart, and you're on Signal of Doom. Well, you know, for me, the action is the juice. I'm in. Hello and welcome to Signal of Doom. I'm Dave. I'm here with Rich, and we've got the great Steve Englehart. Steve, how are you? I'm doing good, guys. How are you? Uh, we're fantastic, and thank you so much for coming on, Steve, on to Signal of Doom. Hands across the ocean. Uh, you're in California, is that right? That's right, yeah. yeah we're in Sydney, Australia. Um, yep. Now, my first question, Steve, is how's your post-apocalypse going? <laughs> <laughs> Pretty good, actually. California was... Um, might be the best state in America in terms of uh, uh, vaccinations and so That's on and good. so forth. So um, we took it seriously. Most yeah. of us, many yeah. of us, took it seriously earlier, early, and so That's you know, okay. Isn't we're that? doing okay. That's excellent. Now, the first thing we always ask every single person who comes on Signal Doom that we interview: Team Betty or Team Veronica? That's our first question to start off things. Uh, I think Veronica. Veronica, good, go. good answer. And you know what? You're the first one to pick Veronica. She normally gets, oh, we date Veronica, but, but marry Betty. But I'm glad to hear someone's picking Veronica. That's good to hear. Um, <laughs> <laughs> now, now, Rich, you've got some questions about Shang-Chi? Uh, yes. So um, uh, congratulations, obviously, on uh, Shang-Chi making it to uh, film, Steve. Uh, did you go to the premiere or anything? Did you have a good experience? Yeah, I did. Um, uh, whenever Marvel debuts or you know does a premiere of anything that I'm involved in, I go to it. Um, this was the first one. They they said that for Black Widow, they did some small thing in London, but they didn't do anything in Hollywood. So this was like the first Hollywood premiere they'd had in a year and a half. Wow. Um, and everybody had to be vaccinated or have a COVID test and... and had to wear masks in the theater, but still, you know, fun to go back to a theater and uh, and see it on the big screen. That's good. And 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 obviously, speaking of uh, the big screen, um, recently quite a few of your characters have uh, pretty much become household names. Mm. Uh, how does it feel all these years later to uh, to have your characters sort of have this popularity or become sort of more mainstream known, or do you even still see them as your characters? Yes and no. Um, I understand that the movies are going to make modifications because they're a different medium. They've got a different time constraint. Uh, they've got to have actual people do them, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but, you know, I, in my, I mean, Mantis is probably the most clear example in that there's no relationship between the Mantis on screen mm. and the Mantis that I created, other than that they're female. That's the only overlap. Um, and that, you know, on the one hand, I'm a little um, uh, tweaked about that because I really liked the Mantis that I created. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, I like the Mantis in the movie. I like the, I like the Guardians films, you know? So, I mean, I, I uh, can't work up some sort of grudge sure. <laughs> over over all of this does um, the check clear does the check clear though that's the big question when you know you've you've created a character like mantis and they're using it to, you know i hope they pay you for that they do yeah that's there's good. you know disney's good marvel's good um that's about right. you know being fair to the creators well that's um, good that's important 
It is. Yeah, it is. You know, I mean, you want somebody to, you know, to value. I mean, to kind of circle back to your original question, I mean, you, you want people to value what it is that you do. On the other hand, you know, when I was writing comics in the 70s, comics was a self-contained universe. There, there were the people who read comics and then there was everybody else. Mm -hmm. And we didn't think in those days that it would ever get outside that particular universal bubble. Um, so the fact that, you know, all these years later, uh, those things are still in print, people are still discovering them for the mm -hmm. first time, that they're making movies out of them. I mean, that's gratifying that it was, you know, that it, that it, um, was, you know, had enough going for it. That, yeah, that it had enough it juice. Do all that. Yeah, it, it had enough juice, I think. Like, now, I'm always glad for the creators if the old stuff, like the Shang-Chi stuff, for example, gets reprinted, put in omnibus form when a movie's released. Obviously, mm. a lot of people, I guess, are, are going to you know, find that character and go, well, I like Shang-Chi. He's cool. Mm -hmm. And they can go and check out your omnibus. Now, I, I hope that in terms of... I've always wondered this. In terms of reprints, um, you, do you guys see a back end of that kind of thing if you did that stuff back in the 70s? Like... Yeah, they, you know... Um, Good. Are you asking if we get royalties for that? Yes, yeah, 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 yes. Yeah, yeah. we do. No, Marvel has always been, um, you know, Marvel yeah. as Marvel was yeah. always good about, because a lot of their business is reprints, you know, yeah, right? Yeah, 100%, so they, man, yeah. If they, were, if they were not going to, you know, take care of the people who did the stuff, there, there'd there be a lot of unhappy people out there. 100%. So that's always been the case. And then oh, when good. Disney took them over, I mean, Disney... Uh, we're dealing in bigger sums now yeah, 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 because yeah. there's movies, but it's the same process, right? I mean, yeah, they, yeah. they, they, you know, they honor the people who did the stuff in the first place. I, I'm so glad about that. Now, Steve, there's something I want to mention, and it's a bit of a lighter topic. I want to mention Snowflame, the cocaine-fueled DC supervillain, who I believe yeah. got his power from snorting lines. Now, I only just heard about this character. Uh, was this a throwaway character or something you planned to develop, Steve? Because it sounds insane. Uh, it was somebody I planned to envelop. That was a weird um, little series in that um, I was doing Green Lantern with mm. Joe Staten at Green Lantern Corps, as it turned out. Um, and then they asked me to do that's, that year's crossover, which was Millennium. Okay. And Millennium created 10 new superheroes who were more kind of like people off the street who got turned into superheroes. Right. And so I wanted to keep going with that, and so we spun it into its own series. Um, I Here's a little-known fact. It was mm. called The New Guardians, but the original title was Trumps. I wanted to call it <laughs> Trumps, as in, you know, Trump cards. Right. Um, oh, so not related to I Donald told, Trump. No, no relation yeah. to Donald Trump. But I was told, even in 1986, yeah. that we could not call it Trumps because there was this guy. Yeah, you know. yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, so, uh, but anyway, so then it became the New Guardians. But then I said, because it's people off the street, um, I want to be able to talk more about the real world. I want to do sex, drugs, yeah. rock and roll cool. as really experienced. And the editor in chief at DC said, fine, he would let me do that. And mm. then when the first issue came out, <laughs> My editor jumped in and said, no, there are things here that you can't do. And I went to my editor-in-chief and I said, but you said. And he said, well, but I have to let the editor be in charge. Yeah. 
Uh, and I said, well, then, you know, I don't want to continue this. So Snowflame was in the plot for issue number two. Right. Um, and then Carrie um, Bates wrote it and I guess finished off the series after that. Oh, but, I see. Uh, right. But yeah, no, I, that, see, that was part of my sex, drugs, or rock and roll thing. You know, I wanted the character who got oh, high yeah. on cocaine and... and uh, well, that fits you know, the '80s. The '80s was a huge. The '80s was a huge time for people doing lines and stuff. Like it was all through the industry, all through the, you know, media industry and all that kind of thing. Like it's not that big a sort of like um, leap of faith to think that that could actually happen in a comic book. Yeah, well, that's the thing. I mean, you know, comic books for many years were in America were for children. Sure. Um, sure. We had the comics. <laughs> we had the comics code. Yeah. And so you were, you know, I when I learned to write them, I learned to write them for everybody, right? Gotcha. So yeah. little kids wouldn't be freaked out, but hopefully intelligent enough or intricate enough that grown-ups would find them interesting as well. But, you know, uh, the code said no drugs, and then that was something that Stan Lee broke up yes. in a Spider-Man sequence, right? Yeah. Um, he wanted to do... Um, drugs and the code said no and he said well then i'm blowing off the code yeah and that was beginning of a very quick ending to the code after all those years so yeah i mean it, there certainly was cocaine yeah. cocaine was not an unknown concept back like, in like the five day, years later you put it in comics was the apparently too, a bridge too, too far for some people. It's almost like five years later that would have fit right into like a Punisher storyline or something like that. Do you know what I mean? Sure. Like it's it, sure. like things moved pretty fast from the mid eighties, I think, to the early nineties. Um, now mm -hmm. I've got a, qu a question for you. We did recently um, your Avengers Defenders War on the show, which is the first time I'd read it, and it it it, it blew me away actually. Um, this felt when I was reading it, Steve, like an ambitious sort of epic event. A decade before mm -hmm. there were event comics as we know them. Now, I know you did both titles, Defenders and Avengers. How confident were you at the time you could retain the readers in both titles through the whole story? Were you watching sales charts, reading mail, or you just felt you could, you could keep them? Um, well, yeah. You know, I've, I started... That was um, probably within a year of my beginning to write. And when I began to write, uh, you know, I just wrote what seemed like a good thing to write. Sure. And when the results, you know, when the mail came in, you may, may remember mail. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. yeah. Snow put, put it in envelopes and stuff. <laughs> um, uh, people liked it, you know. And, and as I kept writing, people seemed to keep liking what I was doing. So by the time I was a year into it, I was like, yeah, you know, I, I'm, I'm totally confident that I yeah. can do this. And, and the fact that it seems to have worked out indicated that I wasn't wrong. But mm. I mean, it, it could have it could have gone the other way when I, you know, Marvel had done uh, annuals specials in the summer for several years before that. And for whatever reason that year, they decided they weren't going to do that. Right. And I was so close to having just been a fan as a reader, I said, well, gee, you know, I really want to do something special for the summer. And I was writing both of those books, and I came up with this idea. Um, and Marvel was so good in those days. I mean, mm. you know, Roy Thomas was the editor, and he said, well, if you screw up any one of those issues, everything will just topple like dominoes. Right. And I said, I won't screw them up. And he said, okay. <laughs> 
and that was, you know, that was the complete editorial oversight on that right. stuff. So he really so, let you sort of go with it. He trusted you to, to get the books out on time, hit your deadlines, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. I mean, that was the only thing that people had, to, you know, the only requirements for working at Marvel in those days were, can you, can you make this book sell mm. and can you turn it in on time every month? That's good, uh, I think. That's a good that, philosophy. You know, if, you, you know? if those things were happening, then they didn't care what you were doing, which good. was very cool to be able to write stuff like that without somebody looking over your shoulder. Yeah, very oh. freeing. Very freeing as a writer, if you know you, if you're a professional. Um, Absolutely. Yeah, man. Um, Rich, you've got a question about Hulk and Thor? Uh, yeah, so I, we, we just recently read, and throughout the uh, the series, you're sort of building towards uh, you know the, the Thor versus Hulk fight uh, right. of a heavyweight clash um did you enjoy writing that i mean having those two big guys did you did you want to have a winner or did you sort of had to kind of uh, uh leave it with that draw no i mean you know the, the <laughs> avengers and the defenders had casts and uh you know particularly with the avengers i could have switched them out but i didn't um and so as a again as a writer as a young writer learning all the stuff you can learn while you're writing it was a lot of fun for me to sit there and go okay i got six avengers i got six defenders mm. who's gonna fight who how am i gonna put these things together and then i have to have two fights per issue and they have to lead somewhere overall so all those things had to be sort of worked out and it was it was fun as i i mean the reason mm. that i'm still a writer is you know stuff like that is fun for me and so uh you know hulk versus thor that seemed like an obvious thing but then again you know we'd seen a number of you know big guy fights big guy things and that's why i ended up with them sort of just standing there struggling with yeah, each other stalemate it was a stalemate they were sort of in a yeah. grip on each other it was cool yeah 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 um <laughs> So that was, you know, it, it was fun. It sold. Yeah. It's still selling, you yeah. know. Yeah. And, yeah. And, that, and, that, and that rivalry between the two of them is pretty much still still going and a big part of the, the two characters. Uh, now, b back in the uh, 70s when you're writing The Avengers and the Defenders, um, obviously you're working with a big cast of characters, two books. Uh, were you having to watch uh, what was happening in those characters' solo titles? Like, did you have to balance anything, or was it pretty loose and you could kind of do a bit more what you wanted to do with them? Well, it was Marvel was was collegial. I mean, again, that whole thing about the bullpen was was very accurate in those days. I mean, it was a fairly small company still, um, and so uh, people who were writing. For example, if you were writing the Avengers, sure. you did have to pay attention to what Thor and Iron Man and Captain America were doing in their own books. Right. Um, and if you, you know, if you were going to send, you know, all the Avengers to the moon for six months, you had to go and and go talk to the individual guys who were in charge of those characters and say, well, here's what I want to do. How can we make this work? And it, usually, it they would say. I mean, everybody was collegial, so yeah. it wasn't like mm. they were going to like say, no, you can't do that, unless there was some real reason why, no, mm. you can't do that. But, you know, we'd work it out. Um, and and so quite often, uh, you know, 
Steve Gerber wrote a Defenders that kind of sent Hawkeye to the Avengers. And then when Hawkeye got there, he would say something about having been with Daredevil or, you know, whatever, whatever the situation was. Um, it was just a group of people having a good time doing comics, you know, and, and nobody was trying to be a prima donna or keep somebody else from an idea that they have, you know? You, you mentioned right. Steve Gerber. Um, he's a fascinating guy and a fascinating writer. Um, mm-hmm. Howard the Dark, we've done a few things of his on the show, and it always, you know, through his whole <laughs> career, because sadly he passed away, but very high quality. Do, were you good friends with him, at, you know, back in the 70s? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, in those days, um, everybody who was doing comics had to physically go to New York because mm-hmm. there was no FedEx, there was no internet. There was, you know, you had to physically go to the office and hand people stuff and they yeah, would yeah. hand stuff to you. You had to go to and work. So, so everybody who did comics, I mean, there were like not even a handful of exceptions mm. to that. Pretty much everybody who did comics was living in New York. And right. so you could hang out with anybody you went to parties with anybody i mean you know it was it was uh, it was like that and then you know gerber and i were sort of young writers Mm. together um jim starlin was a young artist who became a young writer you know i mean we were all we were all there so of course we were friends with each other yeah that's cool man And, and sometimes creative people can really sort of turn each other on in terms of their creations, like, you know, sort of that friendly sort of competition almost. You know what I mean? Like, it, yeah. Like, yeah. Yeah, well, there's that, and I would just jump sideways. I don't know whether you guys ever saw Malibu comics yes. in Australia. Mm. But, but you know, Gerber and I worked together again for Malibu, and Malibu wanted to re- sort of recreate what Marvel had been in the 70s. And so we got the same amount of creative freedom out That's of the cool. whole thing. And Gerber and I... We were sitting by the pool one night because they had us out to to a resort in the desert where we could sort of create cool the, the ultraverse. Yeah, uh, everybody. I mean, everybody who was involved in the ultraverse was out there. But Gerber and I were sort of marveling about the about how close it was to what Marvel had been. But my bigger point is when we created the ultraverse, all of us created the ultraverse. Mm. Everybody who was involved would say, well, I've got a character here and here's what I think I want to do with him. And then everybody else was free to say, well, how about this? Or what if you did that? Or what if we connect these two things? Um, that is fun for creative people. Absolutely. Yeah, man. Like, I mean, like, I mean, I don't mean to turn into drugs, but it's almost like if you and Steve Gerber are sitting there in the desert and you're thinking it's almost like smoke a bowl, guys, and just kind of like really plot it out. Like it could get really crazy with you guys, I could imagine, you know? Yeah, well, Gerber Gerber didn't. Uh, what was I going to say? Gerber didn't do drugs. Oh, okay. He smoked right. cigarettes. Sure. And and yeah. eventually died of lung cancer, which oh, was that's a, a shame. real shame. That's but, a shame. Uh, yeah, Gerber was not Gerber was not into getting high, but right. You know, but Doesn't we were matter. half high anyway. Yeah, just yeah, doing yeah. Comic books. So. High on the content, man. You know. Um, now, mm-hmm. I want to mention something, Steve. I've I, I got to be honest, your Captain America run, it's what turned me on to you as a writer. I basically hit Google, uh, you know, 10 years ago or something, and, and I looked for recommended Captain America stories because I'd read Baker's run. And I was like, what else is there? And your stuff came up, and I read it uh, on Comixology. It's incredible. You took it to the White House lawn. You exposed the president himself as leader of the Secret Empire, who then blows himself away on the page 
Take us back, Steve. Um, it's obviously the 70s. You've got the pullout from Vietnam. The 60s is over. Nixon's a tainted president. How much were you channeling? Did you really feel when you were writing it that the dream was dead? Was that the zeitgeist of the moment? Because it seems, I'm like, wow, when I'm reading it. Um, actually, no. Okay. <laughs> um, because the, the thing on that was Nixon broke the law. They mm. were having the Watergate hearings. And this was back... I don't know how much you're paying attention to American politics. Hopefully not very much. But um, in those days, there were both of the parties had statesmen in them. And so the whole Watergate hearing was a very formal, right. serious thing, which was broadcast on all three of the national channels really? in those days. Every day you watch the hearings and everybody did. It was something everybody in America was like tuned into. Right. And so I'm writing Captain America, which is supposed to be, you know, the Marvel universe is supposed to be in the real world. And yeah. it just didn't make any sense to me that Captain America wouldn't be affected by this. Wouldn't, you know, oh, hell yeah. but I couldn't do the actual Watergate. I mean, it was hearings. It wasn't, mm. it wasn't very dramatic. So I made up this story that kind of paralleled the main points of, of Watergate. And the story itself just led to the, the you know the number one guy being in the Oval Office. It's crazy, man. Away. It is crazy, dude. When you read it, I'm like, man, this is awesome. I re reread it last night, and I mean, you're really taking a chance there because I imagine there'd be some like always. There's always extremists on every side. So there surely would have been some guys saying, no, come on, you know, USA number one or something like. He's the president's killing himself. Well, I mean, um, I chose, it was my choice not to show exactly who it was. Yes. Uh, uh, and, I mean, we have extremists now, but we didn't really have extremists like that back then. I didn't, you know, fear for my safety or anything. Mm. Um, uh, and, again, the cardinal rule was, is it selling? And it and it did sell. Yeah. Um, and, and, you know, I honestly... I'm sure there must have been some negative pushback on it just because nothing is over 100% in sure. one direction or the other. But I, there wasn't much. I mean, sure. it doesn't, it didn't, it didn't, everybody was really into the story. Yeah, I mean, it's people, a great story. It's a great story they, having I, read it. liked it. And then the story itself just sort of wrote itself. And when it got, you know, it came yeah. to that end. And mm. then I thought, well, what would that do to Captain America? Mm. And that, you know, I mean, it was like each episode led to the next episode for me. He, he um, became nomad then, didn't he? After that. Yeah. 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 That was pretty um, cool too. Um, now I, I do want to mention that Steve's full cap run has recently been re-released in a big fancy omnibus, which I actually did buy. So it's. I think it's Captain America. I want to say Volume Three, but it's it's it came out a couple you know, about a couple of months ago, I think. Um, mm -hmm. Now, in terms of your run on Cap, um, you're hitting it out of the park, and then you sort of leave the title. And I notice Jack Kirby um, comes onto it. Uh, now, I don't mean to dig up old memories, but like, was was this by choice, or did they push you out because Jack Kirby, the co-creator, was coming back? What was the scene? No, that was by choice. Um, okay. When I I. That story, you know, went from the Secret Empire to Nomad yeah. to to coming back to Captain America. I always, you know, I said from the start when I started the Nomad thing, mm. how long can I do a book about Captain America with no Captain America in it? Yeah. Um, and, you know, the stories told themselves and they led to that conclusion. 
And I got, you know, I got to the end of that and I thought, well, um, I could, you know, I, I could have continued to write it, but I thought there, you know, I'd like to try some other challenges. Um, sure. And they, and they actually were telling me they were going to do a black and white Thor magazine with, you know, 50 page stories about Thor. Cool. And I thought, well, that would be fun to do that. So I consciously, you know, I wrapped up Captain, my Captain America run and and went my way. So a guy named, um, blank in his name, but um, he actually did take it over. Whoever took it over next for the next couple of issues. Um, we really liked his work, um, both the editorial and, and I. Uh, and, and expected him to be the next guy, but it turned out he could not turn it in on time. Right. Uh, he was too, uh, and so they were kind of in flux, and right around that time, Kirby wanted to come back, and gotcha. so they said, well, here, you know, yeah. do that. But it didn't, I wasn't, uh, it didn't affect me at all. You, you know? told, you basically told your story, and you were like, I'm done, walk away, drop the mic kind of thing on camera. Yeah, I could go back and fight supervillains again, but it just sort of seemed like, yeah, it seemed like a mic drop kind of Yeah, kind no, of I, I hear you. Rich, you've got a question about scripting? Yes, so uh, I'm going to just give you a bit of a break from uh, Dave's grilling before he gets to <laughs> Batman and just ask you a question. So obviously there's the famous thing that your Marvel coined, which is obviously the Marvel style. Right. Uh, of, now, is that something that they uh, you're expected to do or is that just something that they, they coined be, because it was popular or, or could you pretty much write in your own... Um, style or the way that you wanted to? You could write the way you wanted to, but I wanted to write Marvel style. Um, uh, I will jump to the next question, which is I did the Batman. I ended up doing the Batman full script because right. I was running out of time and, and couldn't wait the way you won, the way you do on Marvel style. But I, I, you know, I started out as an artist. I, mm. I was on my, I have on some trajectory to be some sort of artist and got and got sidelined into writing and found I really liked writing and then I had all the writing I could handle and and mm. so I couldn't continue the art thing but I really it was comic book art that really brought me to comics because um, I I you know sad to say but I grew up in the 50s and and all there was was DC Superman and Batman and and Wonder Woman and they weren't the stories weren't all that fabulous in many cases but sure. there was you know dick sprang doing the art on batman and stuff like that my point being um i really liked artists and mm. i really liked the marvel style because i would tell the artist everything he needed to know in order to tell the story visually and then he got to tell it the way he wanted to and then i would get that back and i would i would write the dialogue to fit the art but it it really freed the artist up a lot to be artistic, you know, to tell the story, to do something rather than just, uh, you know, draw what I told him to draw. Now, having said that, I mean, so that was my preferred method of working, and that's the way Marvel worked. So, yes. you know, there we were. When I did uh, end up doing full scripts for the Batman, it was the first time I'd done full scripts in quite a long time. I'd done a few back when I first started at like Vampirella. Um, over at Warren and Marshall Rogers told me later that he really liked having full scripts he liked having being told exactly what was supposed to be drawn and then he would mm -hmm. draw that but he would have his you know he could noodle around on the edges and so forth so not even all the artists 
prefer one style or the other, but yeah. but I preferred the Marvel style. Yeah, okay, that's that's cool. that's interesting. Um, now, look, I, I'm a huge Batman fan, and I think we have you on the show. We have to talk about your run, which is an old timer of Batman. Was Batman mm. a character that you really wanted to write as as a writer when you broke in? You're making all these waves at Marvel. How did DC lure you across? Was it a heavy hitter like a Julie Schwartz who made the play? Like, what was the story? No, it was even higher than that. It was the publisher, Jeanette Kahn. Um, okay. I, you know, I had one of several falling outs <laughs> with the industry that I had over my, you know, over my time with comics. Right. Um, and my wife had traveled in Europe before we got to know each other. And I had never been to Europe at that time. And I really wanted, I, when I found myself walking away from Marvel, I said, well, cool, let's, let's take some time off and go to Europe. Sure. And as we started to plot that out, uh, Jeanette Kahn called me up and asked me to come over um, specifically to do for the Justice League what I had done with the Avengers, was the way she put it. Okay. The, you know, as you may remember, DC characters were pretty much statues, you know, icons. Sure. And they didn't have the characterization that Marvel had injected into Archetypes. Everybody. Isn't that the word they always say? Aren't there archetypes? Right. <laughs> they exactly. always say that. <laughs> yeah. So. You know, she had me come over and, you know, took me to lunch and made me this pitch to do the Justice League. And I said, well, you know, I'm already planning to go to Europe, but I can push that out, you know, like maybe nine months, a year or something. But mm. at some point, I'm uh, this is a limited time engagement here. Right. Okay. And, yeah. And with that in mind, I'll do the Justice League, but I want to write Batman, too, because yes. coming from the 50s. The only cool stuff was, you know, Dick Sprang's Batman. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, I had no interest in Superman per se, Wonder Woman per se. Um, fixing the Justice League, again, a challenge, which was interesting to me as a comic book writer. Uh, but I wanted to write Batman. And so she said, okay. And, and I will just add, Julie Schwartz did have a reputation for being a very hands-on editor. I mean, yes. he would... Sit the his, sit his writers down, and they would work out stories together, and that was not what I did. And so no. I said to her, you know, both of those books are for Julie, and I I really like Julie because I knew Julie from being in New York, even yeah. though I hadn't worked for him. Uh, and I don't want to get him bent out of shape. And she said, "Well, I'll take care of it." And whatever she said to him, Julie never had a problem. Yeah, that expressed to me. Because I've, I've heard that a lot. That like, I mean, a fantastic editor. I mean, one of the all timers. But he was very into sort of almost like a co-plotting sort of thing, and then right. they'd go away and yeah, script. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, now I've got um, I've got a couple of questions about Batman and, and JLA, but um, I've got a Joker question because obviously you have the laughing fish story there. You and Marshall yeah. Rogers bring a real menace to the Joker. He's so creepy and dangerous and surreal with the laughing fish. He pushes right. that henchman into the traffic. Like, was that sense of the callousness and the danger always there in Joker, or did you create that and bring it out in him, Steve? Because it just feels like, no, you know... That, that was what the Joker was like in the first two years of his existence. <clears throat> oh, back at the start. Uh, back in, you know, back in 1939, 1940, wow. the Joker was a homicidal maniac. And oh, as I said in <laughs> some introduction to a Joker collection i've sure. done about a dozen of those yeah over the years um he was basically the first serial killer in comics in that he 
was a killer and he was in sort of a serial in the in the 40s every time a joker story would end he would either die or he would go to jail right. and every time the next joker story came along he would have some clever escape from death or jail and yeah. and go on about his so they had continuity which was an, which was an interesting thing but um, in about 1941, Batman was really blowing up, and, and yeah. DC said, we want, you know, in addition to detective comics, we want a Batman comic in and of himself. Yep. And they sort of, you know, they, that's when they sort of made it more family-friendly. That's when Robin uh, got introduced. They dulled it down a bit, didn't they? Know? They sort of rounded off and the that's edges. When, that, that's when the Joker became more of a clown yes. and of a scary maniac. But my take on wanting to do the Batman was I wanted to get back to that whole pulp darkness yeah. stuff from the 30s, which only lasted two years. And, yeah. and it had been 30 years at that point since we'd seen any of it. So it, you know, it, it blew a lot of people away. Yeah. But I, you know, I'm I was just resurrecting and, and updating um, the original concept. Yeah, and your artist, Marshall Rogers, really brings out that feel as well. Like he was fantastic yeah. on that on that run. Like it's when I went back and reread it before we did the interview, I just kept get, getting blown away by the art. I just kept thinking, man, this is awesome. Like, yeah, you know, yeah. and yeah, it's crazy. Now I do want to talk about Silver St. Cloud because outside of Selena, I can't think of another woman who has stolen Bruce's heart so completely. I think it's fascinating relationship. He Bruce is very human with her. He kind of goes past mm. the playboy act. As a writer, bringing Silver St. Cloud in so completely, was that a way to explore another side to Bruce Wayne? Were you trying to deepen the character? Absolutely. Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, so I was brought to D.C. to, like, humanize all these people. Mm. And, uh, you know, I did what I did in the JLA with the, with the various characters. But one thing that had always bugged me was, even as a little kid, I couldn't... Whenever Lois Lane would cuddle up to Superman, he would get... <laughs> He'd blush and stammer and all yeah, that. And I, yeah, yeah. even as a little kid, I thought that's not really how adults <laughs> relate to each other. So I wanted to, I wanted to bring sex into uh, comics. Yeah. Um, and again, we we had the comics code, so you couldn't do sex. But and so that's why we dance around it. I mean, we see silver and negligees and bed, etc., etc. Yeah, you do. Um, yeah. Right, but. Uh, I thought I'm always more interested in the guys inside the costumes than the costumes. And yes. Bruce Wayne is a fascinating character. And I wanted to see who that was yeah. in addition to, you know, in addition to the Batman and the way to do that, I thought, and also to make him an adult for sure. Not, mm. you know, not an overgrown boy. Yeah. Yeah. Not a baby kind of thing. Was who's scared of women. You know, like sometimes with Superman, woman, you know, sorry, I didn't mean to talk over you, but sometimes like say with Superman and stuff, they kind of make them, they're sort of like babies. It's like, why would you be yeah. so terrified of Lois? Like, you know, yeah, yeah. I, it just seems silly. And, and so I, Silver St. Cloud was completely designed mm. to be a strong adult woman who could stand up to Bruce Wayne, who was obviously probably not easy to live with, you mm. know? Or to or to even understand and um, so and, and and all those stories again you know I mean I had some sort of 
on things like that, I start out with maybe a couple of ideas about where those things are going to end up. But I really let the story kind of develop mm. issue by issue and the characters and so forth. And so that's where that story led, right? Yeah, man. And um, I really like it when Silver calls up Dick Grayson and Robin comes to the rescue on the Hugo Strange yeah. story. Now, I know this is an era where the team-ups were more occasional with Robin. Was it fun to kind of call Robin in off the bench? And did you have to clear that with, like, Titan's office? Or as Batman writer, did you have first dibs on Dick Grayson? Yeah, we had Julie Schwartz's office had, had first right. dibs on it. And, and, you know, so I'm sure I talked to Julie about it. Um, but Batman was under his editorial purview. Um, well, I'm, I thought this is the one chance I get to yeah. write Batman. And so... I want to do all the Batman stuff. Yeah, the to cool me, stuff. And that included Robin, right? That yeah. included Robin. That included the Penguin having an actual mystery to have to solve. You yeah. know, that included the Joker being an actual homicidal maniac. All these things, I wanted to get, I wanted to hit all of the best parts of Batman. Yeah. And, you know, humanize Bruce Wayne and give him this whole love affair on the you know i mean yeah. so i was doing all these things which again fun for me um uh, and so and fun for know. the readers yeah. fun for the readers fun for your artists now you have to forgive me steve i'm a bit of a lowest lane when it comes to chasing stories and i like to get it from the horse's mouth now is it true that batman 89 movie heavily riffed on your stories and even a treatment that you wrote is that correct yes that is correct um when that series came out in comics, Michael Uslan did an interview, like right then. He said, I can see how to do Batman as an adult, which was like one of my points, right? right? So I'm like, that's cool. But I was, you know, I wasn't involved in Hollywood at all. They yeah. went off and, and spent 10 years trying to adapt those stories to the movies. And um, Oh, right, so he, he made the comment back then, way before, so... Back in the late 70s, he, he made the comment, and then they've been working yeah. on it for 10 years. Oh, yeah, I got yeah, you. Right. Yeah. Okay, I didn't realize. So for, it and took so, them a long time. Yeah, well, they did it for like 10 years, and then um, Jeanette came to me again, and she said, nobody's been able to get this. You had a, you had a feel for the Batman mm. that the Hollywood guys don't have, and mm. so we need you to get involved in this movie. Um and again, since I wasn't a Hollywood guy, I didn't get Hollywood money. I didn't get Hollywood, yeah. you know, screenwriter protections, any of that kind of stuff. I just did it as like, a, you know, another another comics gig in a sense. Mm. Um, and so, yeah, I worked on the movie and they kept sending me scripts um, and I would go, well, and you know, if you're going to try to do my thing, we need to, you know, take this part out and do this other thing. And mm. But they were also trying... You guys, I'm sure, have seen enough of these things to know that for a long time, right through the first Superman movie, mm. uh, Mr. Luthor, um, yeah. they always thought, if I'm doing a comic book movie, I can't take it totally seriously. It's got to be a bit of and, comedy kind of thing, a comedy angle. Right, kind of. and we also have to have some sort of second banana guy who will be funny. Yes. You know, and, and you know, it's sort of a comedy, and but it's not serious. And I And I had done a serious dark Batman. So there was this continuous thing where I would say, you got to tone this down. And then they would send me a thing and it would be kind of like the same thing, only different. Mm. And I go, no, that's the part we don't want to do. And 
and and so so you're really a consultant then you're a script consultant kind of basically that's yes. what you are yeah yeah, yeah. I, in in later terms one would say script doctor you yes. know i mean yeah that's and and i wrote a couple treatments i mean you know i was doing everything i could to get this movie to be made and in the end it's a great movie you may or may not know when when the movie actually came out mm. and, and the movie was about silver st cloud i mean the 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 the, the girl yeah, the interest Kim, Kim uh, was silver st cloud the bad guy yeah. was boss thorn mm. and then when the movie came out they had changed those names and i got no credit and i got no royalties <laughs> you know right. i mean dc is dc is a very uh, uh not creator friendly so they really company. screwed they really screwed you on that uh, you know, they really did. Yes, yeah, they really did. I didn't and... realize it was that bad. Like, I, I will say this for the movie, which I mean, I, I I have to say, I saw it in cinemas when it came out, and it blew me away. Um, mm. Obviously, you've got you, you know, you did that great Joker. I've always thought Jack Nicholson's Joker was fantastic. I I still mm. think it's fantastic. You know, um, yeah. And I can see threads, kind of like how he went with it. It's kind of like, do you remember back in the sixties they had the Batman TV show? And I th- want to say it was Cesar Romero. It was the yeah. Joker. Yeah, yeah. But it's like, imagine that character kind of like darker and more adult. And he sort of seemed to, I don't know, he really captured something there. And that's, it's yeah. so interesting. So I'm really sorry to hear that about the movie though. Um, obviously then I- I've got the tales of the Batman hardcover. You came back, uh, I want to say mid two thousands, did a great uh, sort of reunion with Silver St. Cloud with Marshall Rogers on art. I mean, it's yeah. fantastic. Now, I, I love that line Bruce says to her, 3 a.m. is filled with dreams. Um, did you and Marshall always feel you had one more big Batman story in you? Is that what brought you back? Well, we thought we had a whole bunch. I mean, when we, when we did the Batman thing, mm. um, you know, I did it, and then I went to Europe, and Marshall drew it, mm-hmm. you know, and I came back from Europe, and other people were doing Batman by that time, and, you know, I fine. I had done my thing. Um, But we explored various ways of, we wanted to do actually, Marshall and I wanted to do a um, self-published Batman story. Wow. Um, But we couldn't work out, we couldn't work, and and in those days, DC would have been willing, was willing to do that, but they, but they did have some restrictions that we didn't like, and in the end, we couldn't, we couldn't make a deal with it. But um, when, you know, I mean, so from seventy mid seventies to mid eighties, I was just doing comic book stuff. Sure. You know, as as it appeared. Um, after the movie came out, um, not only did did Marshall and I both not get any credit for yeah. the movie, yeah, um, but DC never asked us to do any Batman stuff again. I did a few Batman things without Marshall. Marshall mm. did a few Batman things without me. But DC didn't put us together again. Didn't have us, you know. Didn't allow us to do anything. I, I wonder if that part part of that was corporate saying, "Let's not sort of, you know, we we know that there's a bit of a relationship that's gone astray here. We've we've screwed them a bit. Like, let's not sort of, you know, deal with them." I'm just wondering. I'm just guessing. Yes, that's that's pretty much it. Um, but then when the Christopher Nolan movies came out, mm. they came. They had a new guy. Uh, the Dio was now yes, and had replaced Jeanette, you know. Yeah. And the Dio came and said, you know, we want a lot of Batman product to go along with the movies, and so we would love to have you guys come back together and do this thing, you know. Well, that's good. Uh, and and we just 
it had been 30 years by that time. time yeah. And there was no, we didn't have to go search our memories as to what we would do. We just immediately had it right there. I mean, we couldn't, you can't do Batman if DC won't let you do Batman. Right? 100%, so it's not yeah. like yeah. we were sitting there thinking of Batman stories no, all these no, no, years because no, no. we there was no point to it. But as soon as they said, do one, we're like, yeah. It's a great know. story, man. I, I've got to be honest, as a follow-up story, I only read it recently. Um, I, I'm sorry, I just wasn't even aware it existed. And then I, I bought the hardcover, read it, and I'm like, this is a damn good sequel. Like, sequels are tough, especially after 30 years, coming back and, you know, you, you're picking the characters up, you know, it ends, how it ends with the burning building. I'm like, it's pretty heavy stuff, man. It's good. Mm. Um, now, I mean, look, I, my final question on Batman, I, I noticed uh, in the in the sequels um, book, you had a Haney character who the Joker kills. I was wondering, was that a nod to Bob Haney of Batman Brave oh, and Bold? Yeah, absolutely. Oh, Excellent. absolutely. Yeah. I, and one thing I did do in Batman, um, I mean, somebody lived in the Fox Gardens. Somebody's, it's, it's said at one point, our agent Broom is in Paris. He's a good man. Yeah. <laughs> I mean... I was I was referencing the people that I thought had done, yeah, good Batman stuff. You know, I, I cool. I'm, you know, I was a fan before I was before I was a pro, and yeah. and so I I liked some stuff, didn't like other stuff, but sure. the stuff that I did like, I I wanted to make an appreciation. Yeah, definitely. That. It's like if you're playing a, an Arkham game, if they were fighting, it was on Steve Englehart Drive or something. It's just a little nod, you know, sort yeah. of t to the thing. Now, uh, final question on Batman. Um, I can't help feel, reading it again for this uh, you know, interview, the characterization that you had for Bruce Wayne is, I think, deeper than it is mm. now, where he's almost 100% Batman all the time. Do you right. think DC have kind of weirdly stepped away from that 70s, that you you brought this vibe in where he had a bit more complexity, and now he's just like Batman. It's just Batman right. one hundred percent of the time. Right. Well, DC. I mean, what can I say? DC is a corporation. They're not. They're not the overmind on this stuff. So sure. obviously, individuals doing these various characters can come at them Differently. however they feel. Mm. But I think with the DC corporate vibe, people tend to go down certain paths, mm. and. I mean, uh, I created Kilowog over in the Green Lantern Corps, and I and because he was a big brute-looking guy, I deliberately made him an intelligent scientist. Sure. And now that I'm gone, he's a big brute who <laughs> trains Green Lanterns. You know, I mean, yeah. they they are not. Yeah, I get what you're they saying. They don't deal in complexity over it, there. It's like um, um, but we've we a big friend of the show, Chuck Dixon. He created Bane, who's um you know a very smart kind of character. But honestly, you'll read a lot of Bane stories they do now where he they forget that he was smart. You know, he's just right. he's just a brute. Like they sort of they go back to what they think is type. But if they actually read sometimes the original conception, there's a bit more going on. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. And, now, and so yeah. you know. I can understand Batman being seen as a force, just an, a dark force, implacable, un, un, incomprehensible, whatever. But that's how people, I mean, I can understand people seeing that, but then I want to see more than that. Yeah, yeah. Whereas DC has just sort of, you know, I mean. They're focused in, they're focused in. And believe me, I'm a Batman tragic, so I, I'm as guilty as anyone else. Like I, My first Batman book I read was um, Dark Knight Returns. 
And I was like, mm-hmm. oh my, and I remember telling my dad, I was like, it's all different now. Forget about Robin. You know, I was, and my dad's like, okay, calm down. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, now, look, thank you for uh, my Batman grilling. Rich, you've got some Green Lantern questions. Rich is a big Green Lantern yes. guy. We, we, we're going to take a little bit of a break from Batman. Not too many Green Lantern questions, though. Um, so, as you mentioned, so, I mean, uh, what I've noticed, Steve, is because we've been reading a, a bit of your stuff for, like, the show and stuff, and obviously I've been reading Green Lantern, so I've read your stuff from there as well. Um, you seem to have a very... Um, uh, lasting, long-lasting legacy, and a lot of the books that you seem to to work on, obviously, Grantham is no exception. You know, your Manhunters, well based on a 1940s idea, have become a like a permanent origin point for sort of the Green Lanterns, and as you mentioned, Kilowog, who, even though he's a bit more of a bruiser, he's still a lot of fan favorites uh, mm-hmm. to this day. Um, when when you started, when you were brought onto GL, obviously, you were brought on when it was Green Lantern. Right. And shortly after you came onto the title, as you mentioned, it changed to uh, uh, Tales of the Green Lanterns or the Green Lantern Corps. Um, did you know that was going to happen before you came onto the book? Or is that something sort of that, that was sprung onto you after you started, then you kind of had to maybe adapt or change uh, your your plans for the book? No, that was my idea. But it, but it was once again one of those things where each story led to the next one. Um, I was doing... When I took over that book, uh, John Stewart was the Green Lantern, and Hal mm. Jordan had decided not to be Green Lantern. And I, I'm pretty sure that they said, "Well, of course, Hal will come back at some point." I mean, that seemed sensible. But I thought, why does John Stewart have to get relegated at that point? Why can't John Stewart be a Green Lantern too? And and then I thought, well. There's another guy, Guy Gardner. Why can't Guy Gardner be a Green Lantern? And that just led me to the whole thing about why can't there be the Green Lantern Corps? Um, and uh, that's so. I mean, it was like each thing led led along. But it, you know, it was it was Joe Staten's and my idea to to um, make it the Green Lantern Corps, and you know, to bring back. Uh, Salak and Aresia um, and Chip, but also to create Kilowog and, and create Guy Gardner out of, you know, his brain-dead <laughs> stupor that he'd been in. Um, uh, so I remember somebody asked me, I've always liked this, but somebody said, how can you write a group book where everybody's got the same power? And I said, it's not about the power. It's about the group. You know, mm. it's about the people, right? right. That's Very my true. philosophy to the yeah. whole thing. And and um, really like Green Lantern Corps. I mean, we, you know, it got to be so popular that they decided to make it the linchpin of a weekly magazine. And, you know, we'd been doing three issue arcs about vast space epics and doing seven pages a week didn't fit that. So that's, we, we left at that point, but I mean, we were a victim of our own success there. That, yeah. you know. Now a, a follow-up question to that, because we're actually going to be doing um, uh, uh, for review this week, Tales of the Green Lantern Corps volume three, uh, which is when you bring them to earth, uh, where you basically have about 12 Green Lanterns running around on earth. What was, were you just wanted to sort of have a bit of a fish out of water thing with that team where a lot of the aliens are on earth? Uh, or, or was there uh, more of a deeper reason that you sort of wanted to bring all these Green Lanterns and have them 
operating on Earth? Yeah, well, once I had started down the road of like, why can't we have three Green Lanterns on Earth? Um, then setting the whole Green Lantern core on Earth sort of made sense, but they did, you know, but they did go out and have space adventures too. I mean, they weren't on they weren't on Earth the whole time. Once again, I was a huge fan of Julie Schwartz, Gil Kane, and John Broom mm. doing the original Green Lantern back in the day, mm. um, and and. I love the mythos, you know, 3,600 Green Lanterns all around the cosmos and the, and the, the Guardians and the Zamorans and all these people. Um, so, uh, you know, I was once, just like Batman or any of these others, I was trying to, you know, think what is the cool stuff uh. that maybe has been forgotten or, you know, neglected or not, you know, not done as well as I'd like to see it. And then what else can I do that's new, <clears throat> you know, because... Uh, you know, I'm not just here to reprint everything. Yeah, yeah. just to mm. play the greatest um, hits all the time, sort of thing. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, yeah, I mean, they sort of they settled down in 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 Los Angeles area in a sense, but they we had plenty of adventures all over the place with those guys. No, no, that's great. No, good. I just thought it was an interesting concept having them sort of operating from Earth instead of. Oa, which I just found uh, quite fascinating. And obviously a lot of them took to the life quite well and others didn't. Obviously, Arissa loved the shopping. <laughs> right. Yeah. Uh, now, um, so, so moving on. So I, I got more of a sort of a, a broader question. I, I've been reading basically Green Lantern since I was 10 years old. And there's been lots of highs and lots of lows when it comes to the series. I feel like it's always a title that DC, uh, like a franchise, they always seem to struggle with. And I feel like... Sometimes they just take the, oh, the solution is let's just put a ring on another person to the point yeah. where currently right now we have literally seven to eight Earth Lanterns right. running around. What, do you have any ideas or, or, or thoughts as to why this is a franchise that they seem to have so much trouble? Because, I mean, they had a lot of success for quite a while with Jeff Johns. He had a good 10-year run mm -hmm. where it was super popular again, and now it's kind of fallen off a cliff again. <laughs> what is it about this franchise that makes it different to you know say your batmans or your supermans or your spider-mans it just makes it so difficult for them to to get it well again there's a lot of mythology involved in green lantern i mean there's no mythology involved in the flash right and there's no real mythology involved in superman he came from another planet we get that yeah you know whatever but with green lantern you've got you know, at least i mean sort of post Green Lantern Corps, you're aware that there's 3,600 of these guys and they're all over the universe and they've got, you know, this vast network of things going on and, and so forth. So you kind of have to be able to um, think big and perhaps even complicated. And again, that's not DC's strong suit. So, mm. I mean, people can come on who can do that, but I, DC is not probably encouraging yeah, uh, that sort of thing. Uh, they want it to be. They they like it when it's sort of simple and straightforward, uh, which doesn't really work with Green Lantern. You know, um, um, I you know, but it's just it's it, to jump again, sort of sideways. But I mean, the difference between Captain America and and Daredevil is that Captain America has some ambiance to him. He's not just the guy, he stands for something else. Mm. 
and, and Green Lantern's sort of similar down the same road in that Green Lantern's not just a guy with powers. Green Lantern is one of 3,600 agents in the universe. And he's got, you know, I mean, so you have to, you know, you have to be able to make them, give them that aura, give them that, you know, that, that aura, for yeah, want no, of a better I, word. I, I hear you. <laughs> yeah. Uh, no, no. Yeah. Uh, so again, so it's, it's just a very difficult thing where I guess it depends on on the writer and I guess what they can do. I mean, I think you uh, you talk about sort of like the mythos. I think you injected quite a, a a lot of mythos and very good mythos. And I think probably that might explain why Jeff Johns had a good run because he really embraced the mythos and building on and making it more expansive instead of sort of mm -hmm. narrowing it down but we do have a listener question uh, we okay. have a listener michael kellisham mm -hmm. uh, who has a kilowatt question he would like to know what exactly is a poozer and how offended <laughs> should someone be if they get called one uh, I, I don't know enough australian slang to to give you a, a straight across answer poozer is just you know i needed a curse word and that's seemed it just popped into my head i love it i don't think you know it's probably like calling some well no no i don't think you'd have to be real offended yeah if you're a producer could, could we maybe just bad. say it means like dumbass <laughs> yeah yeah kind of like that i love it um now steve at the moment um dc uh, over the last couple of years have been pumping out a lot of bronze age material in omnibus form which i've been loving and it's apparently selling well what do you think it is about that era that is resonating so hard all these years later because you're a big part of that era um a lot of the justice league omnibus is coming out like do you think they've realized there's a bit of a gold mine there i don't know because they didn't realize it for a long time i yes. mean they, they as you know as i'm sure you know they didn't republish a lot of stuff for yeah. for many years it's again that's them yeah. um but the bronze age was just there you know there was a whole wave of us who had grown up our entire lives on comics um, and sort of hit it. I mean, we were able to jump in when when everything was going great. I mean, Marvel was really doing well, mm. and DC was doing well, less well than Marvel. But, I mean, DC's books in those days were, were good as well. And, yeah. and so, um, you know, and people... We came into it. And it's like now here's our chance to to take it even farther. Yeah. To do whatever they're doing and do even more of it. Um, and at Marvel, again, we had complete freedom. At DC, we didn't. But I mean, I did. Mm. But most people didn't. Um, they were under the aegis of the editor. But um, uh, it just it was right place, right time. Very yeah. definitely that we all had our shot. We all took our shot. And and we were young and in love. <laughs> no, I hear you, man. Like you were in your prime. You're you're the Beatles in Hamburg, almost. You know, you just you yeah. Just well, hit the seventies. You know, I mean, the seventies were a great era for films. The seventies mm. were a great era for music. It was just. It yeah. was you know. Yeah. It was just a, a just a good good era. I've and, got a question. And, and we just happened to be. A, you know, we were the right age to be a part of it. Yeah, I got a question now. A bit of an older school guy who I, I mean, I, I mean, obviously he's passed away. Bob Haney. Um, mm -hmm. At your, you know, during your DC time period, did you bump into Bob Haney at all? Did you have much to do with him? I didn't. Yeah, I mean, I, I ran into him a couple of times. Mm -hmm. I didn't really know him. Sure. Um, he, 
was obviously writing Brave and Bold, among many other things. Which I love. I love Brave and Bold, man. I love Brave and and Bold. (laughs) You know, that's where Neil Adams really sort of became the Batman Uh guy. Uh And I, you know, I started my career working with Neil, so I was very aware of Bob Haney um, doing his stuff. Sure. Um, but again, I was working for Marvel in the early days. Well, you know, in my first my first incarnation. Yeah. And it, it was absolutely not a problem if I wanted to drop over to DC. I mean, you know, really? again, we were all there in the city, and, yeah. and if, you know. The, it wasn't like you can't come in because you work for the competition or anything. Sure. But, you know, Haney worked from home, I guess. And, and so I never I didn't spend a lot of time at D.C. So um, I never met the guy, but I appreciated what he did. And that's why I gave him the homage later. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's just it's just cool. Now, um, I just do. I know you've spoken to me just like I just want to mention a couple of things. Um, I mean, it's a beautiful run. I, I, I just wish it was longer because every issue feels like it's like a mini at least a TV episode or maybe even a movie. And, for example, your Manhunter two-parter, that was animated almost beat for beat in the Justice League cartoon they did. Um, yeah. did, did you get a writing credit and a check for that? Like, that's, you know, because that's very similar. It is, but but DC is not as, as, not as, as good. we've established. They're not as good about that. I mean, it wasn't until somebody told me that they had adapted it for the Justice League thing that I went to DC and I said... Yeah. Uh, they go, oh yeah, we were going to mention that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, look, you know? some, just just speaking on creator rights. Hunt them down and, and, yeah. and you know pry the money out of their cold dead hand, and if you wanted to. But they're, they're big fans of the thanks. They, they like they seem to think that like saying thank you is better than money. And I'm kind of like if I'm a if I'm a work for hire writer, money is pretty important too. You know, like right, yeah. And that's yeah, how I, I feel. I've always thought. You know, my most important thing is being able to tell the story. My second most important is getting paid. Yeah, getting paid is a valuable thing to have happen. It's not the it's not the top no no thing for me, but definitely it's there. It's right up there. And yeah. and I mean, I would I would just say again, if you look at any Marvel movie, yes, I can tell you they are giving me money and That's they good. do thank everybody on I'm screen. Glad. I mean, we're one of the five million names that go by there while you're waiting for the final scene uh, but, of but the movie. But you're, you're there, and that's important. Um, yeah, now, to it me, is. You to know, me I mean, you kid. want some acknowledgement. That's I think that's yeah. the first thing I said in this interview. You yeah. want somebody to go, yeah, you know. Um, well, we always acknowledge you on Signal, Steve. Now, um, to me as a kid, uh, growing up, you know, money was always tight. Justice League always held such promise because in one title you could have Superman, Batman, Wonder Woman, Flash, etc. I was a big fan of that. Now, you brought in a lot of little backstories and interpersonal drama, like yep. Wonder Woman's relationship with her teammates, Adam's self-esteem issues. Did you enjoy getting under the hood of the Justice League? Because that seems yeah. to be a strength. Yeah, because, you know, all she said to me was, do what you did on the Avengers, give them personality, you yeah. know, but personalities and backstories and relationships and all that stuff yeah. was all part of what I had been doing. So it was kind of up to me to go, well, you know, what would the Adam be like? And let's yeah. do an Adam's, you know, Adam Aquaman story and explore them. When, you know, the reason those books are 34 pages long is because she said, you know, do the Justice League and add all this personal stuff. And I said, well, you know, I can't be doing that in 17 pages. There's just yeah. not enough room. Exactly. So I'm going to I'm gonna need 34 pages a month. And fortunately, Dick Dillon, 
was the artist. And Dick was old school, you know, I and it's it. like, yeah. okay, you want me to draw 34 pages a month? I'll do that. I was told, um, I, I just will jump for this reference. Sure. Um, Marvel, of course, bought the Malibu stuff. And yes. in 2001, they came to me and they said, you know, we want you to bring the Mar the Malibu characters into Marvel. Now, that's this that's a whole long story about why that didn't happen. Sure. But, but um, uh, I said, well, okay, but it'd be like the Justice League. I'm going to need, if I'm going to bring the entire Ultraverse over yeah. here, I'm going to need 34 pages a month. And they said, there is no artist today who can draw 34 pages a month that fans want to see. And there is no artist that fans want to see who can draw 34 pages a month. Really? Um, <laughs> That's crazy. Uh, so... Dick Dillon is such an underappreciated champ. I, I think the guy's an absolute champ when it comes to yeah. punching out those pages, man. You know? Yeah. he's. I mean, he's old school. He's not George Perez. He's not, no, you no. know, that kind of thing. But he grew comics, you know? I mean, he was a he was the guy who drew comics. And, was and he I was an very guy? happy to do the Justice League with him, you know? I yeah, mean, just because yeah. he was an idol, right? Yeah, exactly. And when you're working with him, was he an older guy? Like, was he getting towards the back yeah. end of his career? Yeah, absolutely, he was, yeah. Okay. But, um, I mean, you never... He had a style that he'd had for a long time. I mean, that was his style, right? But, I mean, I don't think you'll find anywhere in those Justice Leagues him, like, sort of just phoning it in. No, I mean, definitely he was, not. Yeah. He's drawing the Justice League, you know, and he's doing it just... His, his style is fantastic, actually, for Justice League. I think it, oh. it's perfect. Exactly. Yeah. He gets all the big things. Now, um, uh, a final question. We have a lot of um, uh, creatives who listen to the show, a lot of writers and artists. Um, can you take us just through your approach, um, a tip you might have on writing group characters as compared to Batman? Like, what's your style? When you're doing Justice League, it's obviously different to when you're doing Batman. Did you have a, any writing tips on that kind of thing? Just that I mean, you have to you have to see any of those characters as three dimensional. I mean, you're writing comics; you only have a certain amount of space. You yeah. only have a certain amount of dialogue. I mean, there's there are things to take into account which are happening in comics, but you have to see you have to really get you know look behind the hood, look under the hood, look yeah, behind yeah. the under the bonnet, whatever we yes. say. Yeah. Um, uh, uh, and it, so it doesn't matter, you know, if it's a group, I mean, if it's a group book, you want to have, um, interaction and, and I'm, I'm a big fan of trying to get something for everybody in the group, every issue. I mean, mm. if it's a, if it's an Adam Aquaman story, obviously everybody else is going to take a back seat, but I didn't want to forget about them. You know, I didn't want to like write people out for three months while I was concentrating on other people. Um, so I always tried to have something for everybody to do. And I tried to do everything that people did based on their characters. You know, so that, as I've said a number of times, let the stories kind of tell themselves. So I would just, you know, month by month, I would go, well, what's the Adam thinking now? He's been, yeah. this is the arc that he's been on. Where is he now? And then what would he do in this situation? And it may be no more than a comment or something like that, but hopefully it was on point. You know, yeah. it, it it felt like this character actually existed and had an, an ongoing um, sort of arc. Yeah, an ongoing self. Yeah, you know? and like Wonder Woman stuff is is great. How you 
you, you, when I was reading, I was like, wow, Wonder Woman's really cranky with like various members <laughs> early on. And, but as you say, over the, I don't know how many issues you did, but let's say you did about 10 or 11, it really sort of, the story flows and, and in a really good way. And like you say, you, 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 little breadcrumbs almost is the style. And I, I like it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I would do things that I called throwing plates up in the air, where I'd be writing some story and I'd suddenly get this idea. And I'd go, well, that's a cool idea. I don't really know where that's going to go. Yeah. But I'll, I'll sprinkle the breadcrumb here right now. Yeah. Just, you know, and, and mm. it'll be up to me when that plate comes down to make it look like I had an idea the whole time, you know? Well, you know, I love it. I love like, it. Yeah. If I drop this breadcrumb here, that'll be cool. And then we'll see. Yeah. Um, and you keep, most, you keep readers coming back then. The readers are like, finish your episode of um, Wonder Woman, your issue, and then go, I want to read the next issue because there's, there's stuff that's, that's still, still churning, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, characters are what keep you coming back. I mean, you can have the world's greatest artwork and, yes. and legitimately great artwork, mm. but it's the characters that you want to see develop it's over true. time, that Very you want true. to follow. It's true. You know? Rich, you've got a now, question? Uh, yes. So we've discussed earlier on, you know, we asked you about, uh, you know, when you were doing Avengers um, Defenders and you were talking about the bullpen and, and stuff. And obviously we've established DC is a little bit more corporate. Mm -hmm. Now, we had uh, uh, James DiMatteis on uh, and we discussed his Justice League run where he was told he couldn't use <laughs> almost any character, you know, no Wonder Woman, no Superman you know, yeah. all that sort of stuff. Was yeah. your experience different? Um, would, 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 could you use anyone you want or were you told, no, you can't have this character, no, you can't use it? Because you you were lucky enough, you did have the big the big three in yours, right. but uh, well, were I, there any I, restrictions? Pretty much the entire traditional Justice League at that point, um, including Adam and Aquaman and Elongated Man and, you know, that sort of thing. Um, no, I... Again, when I came over, she said, Jeanette said, do what you did. And I said, if I do that, I need to be able to do whatever it is that I want to do. Sure. And she's like, okay. So, you know, again, she had a word with Julie and, and, and there was, I mean, Julie was great. And, there, and, and even, you know, in the higher echelons at DC, nobody ever said, you can't have this guy or you can't do that thing. That's why later with the whole Trumps, Mm. Uh, New Guardian thing when they said you can't do that. That was uh, that was um, yeah. different, different it, time. It, it's funny how uh, like when corporates sort of like mature like that, they're selling all these restrictions. You're like, we're still doing comic books, guys. Like, mm -hmm. you, you know, like we're not putting out corporate pamphlets. Um, well, yeah. Marvel, Marvel is doing comic books, right? Yeah. And they understand that exactly the same way you just meant it. I mean, it's like we're trying to do fun, exciting stories here, blah, blah, blah. But, I mean, the heart of it is it's all work for hire, right? Yeah. I mean, yeah. they own it, yeah. right? Yeah. Marvel's approach was, yeah, okay, we own it. Uh, and you may find out later that, that that's not always to your benefit. But, uh, you know, um, we're having fun doing comics. DC's thing is we own it, and you're you're just an employee here, you know, turning out stuff for our corporate interests. Yeah, that's really their their approach to everything, and so uh, you just work in a much more restrictive environment mm. over there, and you never get really the sense that that the people at the top care care. I mean, yeah. Julie cared, right? I mean, there were people. 
you know, yeah. but I mean, overall, as a company, it's just like we hired you, we gave you money, you gave us stuff, end of story, you know. Mm. We don't have to credit you. We don't have to do this and that, you yeah. know. Um, whereas Marvel has always thought otherwise. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, I work in corporate, and if I'm looking at that kind of thing, I'd be sort of like, these are the toys, guys. You can play with them as much as you want. Just don't break them because I need to mm-hmm. sell, I need to sell, you know, pajamas. I need to sell action figures and this and that. Like, but I don't know if I'd be so involved in the nitty-gritty of what the writers are actually doing because in, in a way, in the corporate IP sense of Batman, he's kind of untouchable. Like, no matter what happens in the comic book, the, the Batman IP around the world and Superman IP around the world, they're never going to go out of fashion for the next 50 right. years, you know? Um, right. Now, I've got a question for you, Stephen. You've mentioned Jeanette Khan. You've mentioned Europe was obviously on the agenda. You're mm. doing Justice League. You're obviously doing Batman at the same time, and it's blowing up. Was there a part of you that thought, I could roll Gardner Fox style and do, like, 100 issues of Justice League? Like, or did you have your eye on a finishing point from the start? Well, I knew that I was only going to do so many issues. And mm. so, you know, the overall arc of it, Again, I didn't know exactly where things were going to go, but I knew that it had to go there mm. within a certain amount of time. But I'm I am old school in that regard. I mean, I as I say, when I left Captain America, I just felt like, oh well, I I could keep writing it, but I feel like I've really kind of uh, done my thing here. Mm. But I would have written, you know, Avengers or most of those books, Green Lantern. I would have written a hundred issues of them. Really? You know, I mean, I. I, I never felt like if I didn't have some exterior reason for coming to an end, yeah. um, you know, that I, that, that was the thing. I just, so, I, okay. I, I overlapped the era when people got a book and just, you know, did it. So um, Avengers for you was very much a right fit. Like it was like, you felt like you had a lot of stories you could have kept churning through, for example. Oh Yeah. I mean, you know, because every if you did run out of stories on the Avengers, you just change the team and come up with a new yeah. group of people who could give you new stories. Um, um, no, I, I, yeah, I would have written all those things. I mean, I gave up Defenders because I decided I couldn't write two team books at the same time. I, they, sure. There's only so many villains, you know. I mean, so there are things like that. But in terms of, um, you know, most other things that I did. Um, I would have kept doing them. My, I, I, I gotta, my, my yeah. runs usually ended because I got pissed off and I left. Right, okay. So, yeah, you know? okay. I've got a process question for you. Um, back in sort of like, let's say in the 70s when you're writing Batman, how long does it take you to turn a script around um, back then? I was doing, well, I was basically doing, at Marvel, I was doing four books a month. At DC, I was doing Justice League, which counted as two, I guess, mm-hmm. and the Batman. Um and then I was doing little weird war stories or, you know, things on the side. Mm. But I basically, I found that I was good at about a book a week. And, okay. and that usually worked on the idea of, um, you know, I'd spend two days sort of figuring out what the story would be, you know, just, okay, here's where we left it. What do I want to do this time? How is that going to fit together? What is the plot? Blah, 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 blah. Mm. And then I would sit there for three days and I would write it about eight pages a day, mm-hmm. you know, to get me through the whatever the page count was at that time. And then one day to just let it sit there and think, did I dot all the I's? Did I cross all the T's? Did I get what I wanted here? Yeah. And then a day off. And then yeah. I'd start the next book, you know, the same process. So it was usually two to plot, three to write, okay. one to think over, and one to, and one to relax. 
Um, now, we've got Rich has got a Malibu Comics you've mentioned. Rich, you've got a question? Uh, yes. So uh, I'm glad you brought that up because uh, back in the day, I was actually, uh, well, I was a fan of anything new that came out that I could buy. Um, mm. uh, I, I was very sad when um, Marvel basically acquired Malibu and, I mean, for all intents and purposes, basically shuttered it. They haven't really done anything with the characters. Yeah. Uh, I heard something they bought them mainly for their coloring technology yeah. or something but yeah. what was the what was the brainchild of that like i mean how how did that comic book uh, company because uh, i know you created uh, you know nightman and they created the, the prime and ultra force and uh, a lot of people might not know that's actually where men in black came from uh, mm-hmm. which we had a successful so just can you give us the origin of that and what was your experience uh, uh working for malibu and and uh at your time there well, Malibu had been a small-time publisher. They, you know, they had a bunch of things, including Men in Black. I mean, but they had, but it wasn't the huge thing then when they were, you know, at that point. Malibu had been a small-time publisher, and then when the Image guys broke off from Marvel and decided to publish their own stuff, mm-hmm. they went to Malibu, and and Malibu became their publisher. And then after a while, the Image guys said, you know this is doing so well, we should be our own publisher. And so they became Image at that point. Um, but Malibu, by that time, had made a lot of money mm. working with those guys. And they had seen a bunch of creators get together and create something. So they came to those of us that they came to and said, um, we want to do that, except we want to do it with writers rather than with artists. Um, and so uh, they gathered together I mean, they got some artists too, right? And, you know, but but it was basically a writer-driven organization, and um, so there was that time when they took all of us to a resort for four days, and we created the Ultraverse, just you know, just sitting around tables talking to each other and 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 so forth. And so everybody, you know, everybody came in and they had a couple of characters of their own that they wanted to contribute to the thing, and and. Um, uh, as I say, every one of those sort of was thrown out in front of the group and the group would kibitz and say, well, you know, what about this? And, you know, always positively, you know, how can you improve that, you know, whatever. And so we set off and, and we loved working for Malibu. Malibu was a wonderful place to work. The problem was um, Marvel went bankrupt. Marvel had pursued this thing about let's make everything an issue number one and stop making the stories any good we'll just mm. you know we'll yeah. just sell lots of stuff i mean they said there's you know their quotes in print about you know marvel's just a cash cow we're just gonna like <laughs> you know go from there um i was told <clears throat> when i left marvel in the 80s they said you know spider-man will sell it doesn't matter who does it so we don't have to pay big name guys to do spider-man right you know, I mean, so Marvel, that whole f- approach led Marvel to go bankrupt. Um, and when Marvel went down, when, you know, when the elephant in the room went down, it took everybody else with them. Um, Malibu, because they'd started out with a lot of money, was sort of the last smaller company to hit bottom. But eventually they did. Um, and so they had to sell themselves to somebody. DC was interested, but Marvel outbid them. And, and it is true, Marvel basically, Malibu invented the concept of Photoshop coloring in comics. And and so Marvel was like, well, we want to hire all those people to come do that for us. 
Um, the reason the characters don't exist anymore is um, when Malibu was putting this whole thing together, <clears throat> we were working out of contracts with the individual creators and us individual creators said, we want to own our characters. Sure. And Malibu said, well, we can't agree to that. We need to own them ourselves, but we will cut you in. We will give you a, prop, a percentage of the profits. Good. Um, that turns out to have been a bad deal. Mm. But at the time, we thought, well, okay, they're going to pay us extra. That, you know, yeah. and, and whatever. So the problem was, um, we all have contracts that say that when Nightman gets published, we get a percentage of the profits. Mm. And not only does Marvel, I've been telling you how fabulous Marvel is, but you know, Marvel did not want to do stuff where they had to pay out, it was about 5% of the money to the guys who created the books. And in addition, if they did, then the guys doing the X-Men would show up the sure. next day going, yeah. well, we want the same deal, right? You know? Mm. So... Can I ask they a question? put them in the core, and there they are. And as I say, in 2001, they were going to bring them in, and then yeah. they sort of realized that, and that's what the that's what killed the project. Um, huh. And over the past 20 years, there's been about three different times when people go, well, there's people at Marvel go, huh, well, we have all these characters sitting in the drawer. We should do them. And every time it, it gets shot down because mm. of that. So I, you know, I used to say... I don't think we'll ever see those characters again. I I do hold open the door now that perhaps Disney might go, well, mm -hmm. we own these guys. Why are they in a drawer? Yeah. And and Disney, you know, as you may have noticed, is not hurting for money. So no. <laughs> they could probably they could probably make that work. Um So was it just but, a more favorable royalty deal like that they gave you? Um yeah. Okay, right, I see. So it was a better royalty deal than you would normally get with a Marvel comic, and they don't want to make that the standard because then they'd have other people saying, pay us, you know? Right, exactly, yeah. yeah. Gotcha. So, Were you um, happy with the Nightman TV show, Steve? Because I remember Nightman the TV show from, I want to say, the 90s. Yeah, um, yeah, again, my contract did not say that if they made a TV show out of it, I would get any work out of it. I had to go down and audition for my own character, but <laughs> I passed the audition. Because you, you wrote <laughs> some episodes, then, didn't you? Uh, am I right in saying yeah, I wrote, wrote? Yeah, I wrote three episodes of it. Yeah. Um, it's a fun show. Uh, sorry? It's a fun show. I enjoyed it. You know? Yeah, I liked it, too. I liked it. They, you know, they upped his powers, but they kept the character pretty much the same. And, yeah. and so that's my bottom line. You know, I didn't. it didn't bother me that he had, you know, stronger powers than my guy mm. uh, because he was pretty, you know, it was him and his father and, oh, and, and yeah. at least in the first season it was. And, uh, and what was the inspiration for that character when you created him? Uh, the inspiration for that character was Shadow Man um, in that I was going to do Shadow Man for uh, Valiant and um, that didn't work out. Um, that's another story, but I mean, that didn't work out. And right after that, Malibu came and said, you got any ideas? And I said, yeah, I, I had a good idea for the Shadow Man, and, mm. and I didn't get to do it. So um, instead of Johnny Dark, he became Johnny Domino, and, and you know, but they both played jazz in clubs. I mean, it was, it was basically my idea for Shadow Man translated 
it's good when you can do that when you when you've got a pitch that maybe didn't get taken up by Valiant. You've got well, I've still owned, I still got the pitch. I can I can refit this and put it on a Malibu. You know. Yeah, yeah. Uh, the greatest story about that, um, Steve Skates. You, you guys know Steve Skates? Know the name at least. Um, I, I mean, I don't actually. Sorry. He wrote Aquaman for Dick Giordano in the seventies. He worked for Charlton a lot, and okay. then he came over when when Giordano came to DC. He wrote Aquaman, and he wrote, I think, what is that? It wasn't Teen Titans, but it was some other thing. Anyway, Skates once said that he had sold the same story three times: once to Aquaman, <laughs> once to somebody else, and once to somebody else. You know, you know. Uh, uh, That's great, though. I mean, why not? I mean, you've got to churn these books out. I mean, I look, I've written some novels, but to having to churn out on a weekly, monthly basis these comic books, it would be demanding as a writer, right? I personally feel like, you know. Well, yeah, and that's why I stopped doing it every once in a while. Yeah. I mean, yeah. as I say, I usually left because I got pissed off about something. But but when I was just getting started, um, Dick Giordano was a good friend of mine, you know, very helpful in the early days and all that. Um, and he said, I'm really glad, in addition to being an editor, that the, my, my day job is being an inker, because inkers can just sit there with the TV on an ink, and you don't have to think about it much, and it doesn't, you know, it's not, uh, you know, you can do that. But a writer, he says, every writer I've ever known has burned out, mm-hmm. at which point I, the young mm-hmm. writer, said, I'm not going to do that. Yeah. <laughs> and so, you know, every time... Okay, so I, I enjoyed writing a book a week right up to the point where I didn't enjoy writing a book sure, a week. And sure. when I got to that point, I would go, well, then I think I'll take a break and go do something else. And, yeah. you well, know, over the years, I designed thing. video games, I did animation, I did, you know, all these other things that I could go do, sure. television, um, for, for that very reason. You yeah. know, it's just like, I love comics and I love doing comics, but when it becomes... You're on this endless treadmill. Yeah. Sometimes you want to get off and, and take a break. Well, I mean, yeah, like burnout is a real thing. And, and I think even in like COVID times, we've, we've seen people burn out like, you know, with all the extra stresses and stuff. People who, yeah, it's definitely a real thing. Um, now, uh, I funny you mentioned video games because one of our listeners, Michael Kellersham, wrote to me and mentioned that you'd worked a lot in the early days of the home video game industry, like at Atari. I was yeah. a big Atari kid growing up, and also on systems like the Commodore sixty four. Uh, what titles did you work on, Steve? Do you have any memories of that time? Yeah, well, we worked. I mean, the most famous one, I suppose, is ET. There was we. I was in the computer game division, and there mm-hmm. was also the game game console division. Right. And, and the game console division also came up with an E.T. game, and that's the famous game that was so bad that they just took him out to the New Mexico desert and dumped him in a I hole. I have heard this, yes, yes. It was like, it was, they just, it was terrible. Uh, we also did an E.T. game, and so over the years, people have said, oh, I heard they took your game and dumped it in a hole. No, no, that was the other guy. That was the other know. team. <laughs> but, but um, no, I worked on a Garfield game, The Cat. Uh, do you have Garfield, The Cat? Oh, I love Garfield, man, yeah. Okay, there was one of those. Uh, we did one called Spook, and we were doing a, a, a whole suite of games right at the end of our tenure there when yeah. Atari got sold to um, Jack Tremiel from Commodore, I think. I sort right. of forget now, but okay. anyway, they, you know, he fired everybody and brought in his own people. And so the last game we did was called Final Legacy, oddly enough. Yeah. And um, 
it was that was a truncated version of the thing we'd had in mind. But yeah, you know, that was that was very cool working in the Silicon Valley in the early eighties, you know, that was another right place, right time. Yeah, yeah. And and were you involved what were you what was you were you a story guy or were you Yeah, I was a story guy. I was the story guy. And um um that was an interesting adjustment because, you know, working in comics you can say I have any idea possible to draw that. Yeah. With with you know with Atari in those days we were working in eight by eight grid yeah, pixel. Yeah. I remember. Right. Yeah, yeah. You know. So very challenging. Yeah, it was you know I had to adjust to that. Mm. Um, but you know again that was fun making the adjustments. Yeah, guys, I'm going to wrap this up pretty sure. soon because I've got to go do other stuff. Yeah, um, but, uh, well, I understand completely. <laughs> um, I just want to say. Uh, Thank you very much. Now, have you? Uh, what are you doing currently, Steve? Like, um, have you got anything that you're currently working on or, or recent work? Because we always love to get the word out there for creators. Yeah, well, actually, I do, and, and it's another one of my off off uh, the track things. Mm. Um, when Shang Chi came out, a music company came to me and said we would like to do um, an album of songs inspired by Shang Chi, and so I came wow. up with titles and. Um, ambiances, shall we say? I, you know, mm. uh, for us for a series of songs, and then the actual singer songwriters, usually singer songwriters, um, turn those into songs. So there's an album out, really, <laughs> called <laughs> okay. the Prism Club, um, P R I S M, uh, okay. the Prism Club. It's from Enrage, I N R A G E. Um, and if you Google them, um, it'll lead you to this thing. And so, you know, it's a nice, it's a, it's a nice album, I think. Um, and you know, all I did is sort of be the, you know, the, the, the linchpin of the whole thing, but, um, that's just come out and, and I would encourage anybody listening to this who wants to hear some, you know, some good pop, uh, stuff to go over there. Fantastic. Um, well, look, Steve. Thank you so much for coming on Signal Doom. You're welcome anytime you'd like to come on. We've always got more questions and any product that you want to promote at any point in time, you've got some stuff coming out, you're always welcome, Steve. So thank you very much. You're welcome. Thank you, guys. Fantastic meeting you, Steve. Thank you for your time. (laughs) 